All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah Cafe. This is the best, in my opinion. Okay, I know I'm totally biased here. The best way to get the week started. I mean, come on. Bad jokes, good friends, great food, Kabbalah mixed into the mix. A little Kabbalah mixed into the mix. No better way to get the, to get the week started than with some spiritual um, inspo. So today we're talking about love, love 2.0. And the reason we're talking about love is because of the month that we're in and related to the text that we will be studying chapter 4 of Garments of the Soul. So by way of introduction, every month, right, every month has a, every Jewish month has a Hebrew name. And the, the name of the month that we're in right now is called Elul. Elul. So in English, you would spell it E-L-U-L. In Hebrew, it would be spelled Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed. Elul. What's interesting about Elul, and you don't find this with other months, you really don't, other Jewish months, is you find multiple messages hidden in the name Elul, in those four Hebrew letters, Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed. There's the most famous one, but there are others as well. So what, when I say you have words that are encoded in the month of El, what I mean is something called Rashi Tevot. Rashi Tevot means, for example, if you take, um, it's kind of like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for when you have initials? You take initials, right? So what are your initials, right? So my initials would be Y-A-S. And you're thinking, what? What is this man's name? My full name, my full name is Yehuda Aryeh Solish, Y-A-S. I go by my middle name, which is Aryeh, and a shortened version of that, which is Ari, hence the name. However, the point is the, that my initials are Y-A-S, and so we call that, we would call that, all in, when it comes to words and you know, different words and different letters, uh, we would call that, hold on one second, let me mute everybody, thank you. We would call that an acronym, exactly. I mean, I realized, I'm sorry, I, did, I just saw a note to, to mute everybody, and I was muted, or sorry, my volume was out, so I didn't even hear anything going on in the background, so my apologies. Hope everyone can hear. Okay, so, right, so an acronym. So Elul is the four Hebrew letters correspond to four Hebrew words, and there are multiple combinations of this. So, for example, my Bar Mitzvah Torah portion was Mishpatim, it's in the book of Exodus, chapters 22, 23, 24, and um, uh, Bar Mitzvah, yeah. Math now? <laughs> Math now? I'm 44, so uh, 31? Yeah, there you go. Look at that. I can do subtraction, <laughs> even on a Sunday morning. So anyway, uh, huh? Right. Yeah. Advanced algebra will come later today, next class. So um, uh, what am I saying? So oh, so one acronym is Ina Liyado V'Samtilach. So Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed. Ina zav liyado v'samti lach. What's ina liyado v'samti lach? It's the Torah's conversation about the Ari Miklat, about the cities of refuge. It says that if somebody takes another person's life accidentally, the, the Torah says, it's biblical law, if someone takes someone else's life by accident, and the example that's given in the commentaries is, and the Talmud, is let's say somebody's chopping wood, right? And the um, the axe, the blade, sorry, separates from the handle. As they're swinging it, it separates. And it, right, it, 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 and then it strikes someone else, God forbid, and takes their life. So it was not intentional. It was not even, it wasn't um, negligent, negligent. It was just a straight up accident. 
right? So what's the halacha? What happens? So obviously there's no capital punishment. It's not a capital crime. What would, in, in America, in, in U.S. law, what would we call this? Is this manslaughter? Is it manslaughter? Okay, manslaughter. So what happens in, in Jewish law uh, when, when this situation arises? So the Torah says the concern, there's a concern. Uh, well, first of all, you don't punish the person. You cannot, it's not like there's no capital punishment because they didn't, they, they, they didn't intend on doing anything. But it happened through them, so what do you do? So it's interesting is the Torah says, by the way, you could sit right over here in the hot seat, but then you get all the hard questions. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. I'll be, I'll be, very, I'll be very tame. Don't worry. <laughs> no backhands here. <laughs> um, although, you never know. Okay, so basically, um, so the Torah says like this. The concern, there's a concern. The concern is that the Goel Hadam, which means the avenger of the blood, which I'll explain in a second, might come for retribution against the person who accidentally took the life. So, simple scenario. The, the relatives of the person who was killed might demand vigilante justice. They might say, we want blood. I don't, it doesn't matter if it was an accident or we don't believe that it was an accident and we're out for blood. And the concern is literally for the safety of the individual who accidentally took the life. And so, therefore, there's a provision in Judaism. It's called an, an, an ir miklat, or ar, in plural, it's ari miklat, a city or cities of refuge. And what's a city or cities of refuge? It's a space where you can be protected, one could be protected and safe if the situation were to happen, um, if the situation were to, uh, yes, yeah, probably Ellen's, yeah, there you go. If the situation were to happen, God forbid that the scenario would unfold. So if, God forbid, a life was taken accidentally, and now the concern is, well, what's going to happen with, that, with this guy's safety? So there's a provision for this, and there's an app for that, and we can figure it out, and, um, and the way it works is, Okay, I found this on the web. I don't know why that happened. Sorry. That is who pops up. I don't want to say the name because it's going to happen again. It's an app. No, no. It's an Apple computer. So it's S-I-R-I who somehow heard me say S-I-R-I and now pops up. I don't think I've ever used S-I-R-I, but it pops up in random situations. Okay. Um, Point being that there is a space to have a safe, it's a safe haven. It's a safe haven when things get a little sticky. So when there's a little danger, you have a safe haven to retreat to. That's an Aramikla, it's a city, literally, literally a city of refuge. Ina liyod of Samtilach is four words that are um, in that conversa- Torah's conversation about, a, about the Aramikla city of refuge, to which our sages say, and our tradition tells us, that this month of Elul is a city, city of refuge is in space, but in time, a time of refuge is this month that we're in now. The rest of the year is, 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 there's a hustle, there's a bustle, and we're involved in things, and we make choices that maybe are not in our best interest or in others' best interest. Here's a month in which we can almost escape in a good way, not in, a, not in like a shirking responsibility, but a space to go to, to reconnect with self, to find a safe haven from all of those forces, all of those distractions that wish to suck us in. Because if you think about it, the idea of taking life is really to separate soul from body. You with me? I'm going to say this like quickly. Death, right, is separating soul from body. And isn't that what happens when we make mistakes? We're utilize something only for its physical component, but not for its higher purpose, right? When we make negative choices, it means that we're, we're implementing something of the universe in a way that's divorced from its spiritual purpose, which means we're separating body from soul of this experience, which is causing on some level, right, a cosmic or metaphysical death. 
And so when we do that, there's a space to go to. The space to go to in time, space and time, right, connected, um, is, is, um, is, is El, the month of El. So Inilad of Samtilach. But that's not really, that's the other acronym, the one that I wasn't going to speak about today, which I just did. But the one that I really want to speak about today is the most famous one. And everyone knows this one. It's like, it's from Song of Songs. Ani Lidodi Vidodi Li. I am to my beloved, and my beloved is to me. Now, Song of Songs, quick background. Song of Songs was written by Solomon, King Solomon, Shlomo Melech. And he wrote it as a metaphor, the way, at least the way we understand it. He wrote it as a metaphor. It's a love story. It's a passionate love story between two individuals who are madly in love, and yet... a thousand wives. <laughs> who? Solomon. Yeah. You're saying he could have written about... Yeah. So, right. So on the surface, it's just straight up a love story that's you know, between a man and a woman. And, and there's a lot of drama because you know, when he's interested, she's a little not so interested. And then when she's interested, he's not so interested. It's like trying to get on the same page. It's like you know, straight up, I don't know, like a rom-com or whatever. I mean, sorry, I don't want to equate the two, but I just did. Whatever. But it's like, you know, where you know, they just can't get it. And then eventually they get together. You know, like at the end of the movie, they're happily ever after, that sort of thing. Okay. So that's kind of like a short version of Song of Songs. And one might wonder, well, why is it, and it is, why is it one of the 24 Jewish books of scripture? I mean, I mean, yeah, sure. Should Barnes & Noble carry it or Amazon doc? Absolutely. But like, why is it considered to be one of the holy works of Torah, the 24 holy books? And the answer is because we, we understand that it's not a story about a man and a woman. It's not a physical love story. It's a story about us and God. And how when God's into it, sometimes we're not so into the relationship. When we're into it, sometimes we don't feel like God's responding. And we have this type of, you know, this type of, um, I don't know what the right word would be, but the, the right expression, this, this dynamic in a relationship where it's kind of hard sometimes to get on the same page. And there's a lot of drama. And so there's two verses that relate, that are similar, but, but the opposite. One is, Ani dodi vedodi li. I am to my beloved. I, I love you and then you love me. And the other one is, my beloved loves me and then I love my beloved. And this represents in our relationship with God two modalities. There's two different modalities. One modality is where we take the lead in the relationship. I love you, you love me. So I, I, I begin, I make the first overture, right? I lead this dance. Every relationship, every, every conversation also is a dance, an interplay between two individuals. Otherwise, it's a monologue, right? Monologues are good. SNL, Conan, <laughs> I don't know, that's it. That's all I know from the 90s. But I'm just saying, like, conceptually, right? Like, uh, monologues are great. But dialogue, conversation, there's a dance, there's an interplay, right? One leads, one follows, then the other one, sh- then you shift, then they lead, then you follow. There's an interplay. And so in our relationship with God, you have a similar dynamic. Sometimes we lead, sometimes God leads. Sometimes we feel like we're leading the charge and we're self-inspired, and sometimes it feels like God is leading the, the charge and we, we follow. And so Kabbalah teaches that this month of Elul stands for, it's an acronym, Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, four Hebrew words, Ani, Lidodi, Vidodi, Li. I am to my beloved, and then my beloved is to me, which means in this month, as opposed to next month with the high holidays, we are, to, we are the ones that are showing up. We are the ones that are making, as it were, the first move in this relationship with God in the month of El. We take the lead. We start it. We get it started. We get it going. That's this month. In the next month, the month of Tishrei, High Holidays, God is radiating, 
right? God is radiating um, majesty and sovereignty and, and awesomeness. And so we feel drawn toward synagogue. We feel drawn toward prayer. We feel drawn toward the shofar. We feel drawn toward Yom Kippur fasting. We feel drawn toward these things. We feel inspired, and the inspiration is coming from without as opposed from within, which is not a bad thing. It's just a different thing. There's two different dynamics. There's when you're self-inspired and when you're following the lead of an inspiration that's coming from outside of yourself. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah? When you have to do the kings in the field. Oh, which leads me to the king in the field. Perfect. <laughs> the outer Rebbe writes the following. When you were blowing the show for I saw him die, the way. Yeah. Really? He's lurking. He was in the field. <laughs> BK. BK. All right. So here's the deal. So the king in the field. Let me explain what's going on here. The Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, the first Chabad Rebbe, uh, born in 1745, passed away in 1812. He writes the following. He says that a good way of understanding the dynamic of this month of El is understanding the relationship between a king and his subjects um, in the time that the king is traveling toward the palace. So, so when the king is sitting in the palace. So to get into the palace would require a lot of connections. Like you have to be super, I don't know, connected, or very high on the totem pole. Totem pole? I don't know if that's the right word. Right? You have to be high up there. What we would call in Yiddish a big, well, that's English, macher, right? A big macher, but like a really big macher. How do you translate macher? Mover and shaker? To be a really big macher. Macher literally means maker, but like, to be like a real big macher to get an audience with the king. That's not easy. And then when you go in, there's all the pomp and circumstance. And the very fact that it's so hard to get in actually makes it an awesome experience, right? The harder it is to get into the, to the throne room, as it were, just gives, just lends a sense of gravitas to that experience. It's so hard to get in. And now you're in and now it feels amazing. And so when you're inspired standing in the presence of the king in the palace, it's not because you've inspired yourself. It's because all of that outside stimulation is inspiring you. Whereas, in this month of El, it's a different dynamic. The king is not, as it were, in the palace, on the throne, in the innermost chamber. The king is, in the language of the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, in the field. And he gives an example. He says, you know, when the king is traveling on vacation and then comes back, so he passes through the field. And then he says, anyone who's around, has permission to come and say hi. You don't need any special access. You don't need any special code. I'm sure there's secret service, right? I would hope there's secret service. I don't know. I don't know what happened back in the day in the 1700s. I'm sure they had people traveling. With, it wasn't just the king. Bit of an entourage. But there's full access. When the king is traveling through the field, there's full access. So the Rebbe explains this. Our Rebbe explains this. Seven generations later, he says the following. What's with the king in the field? It sounds, if the king is in the field this month of El, and he says, the whole month of El, this month, God is accessible. King in the field. Next month, you have to show up, you have to fast on Yom Kippur, you have to do all these things to get access to the palace. Like, you have to have a card, you have to like be ready to, you have to be ready to, you, you, you gotta, you gotta, what, you gotta pray to play. Not pay to play, you gotta pray to play. You gotta come, you gotta be serious, you have to have, you know, your prayers, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be in. And then you're gonna have the full experience. But this month, the month that precedes the holiday season, this month, God is in the field, all access, in a casual setting. In a casual setting. 
So the Rebbe asked the question about this and now that's, the, that's an, a, a parable that was given in the 1700s. So in 1966, the Rebbe asked the following question. He says, I don't understand. The whole month of El is all about us, us generating you know, self-inspiration, Ani Lidodi Vidodili, I am to my beloved, right? We're taking the lead in this dance, in this dynamic, in this relationship. We are the ones taking the lead. If that's the case, then how does that fit with the king in the field? Right? Like you asked, if the king's in the field, then, then the king is inspiring us to show up. So then again, it's coming from outside. And so the way we understand this, the answer is, and the way, the way to really frame this is as follows. When the king is in the field, it's not like he's sending out um, like an evite. Now nah, that's paperless post. Is that, is that still in? Are still people still doing paperless posts? Maybe? No. What are people doing? Instagram? What are they? Nothing? Eva, oh, evite? People say evite? All right. So either way, it's not like the king is sending out invitations. Hey, meet me by the cornfield at 2 p.m. and, you know, you can have a meeting. The king is not encouraging or asking anyone to show up. The king's presence traveling, because that's the, that's the route. The king traveling that path gives permission for the person to show up. But to show up is from the person's own volition. It's from their own choice, from their own inspiration, which means in this month, God makes himself, the best word I could use is, available. God says, I'm available. I'm not encouraging you. I'm not, I'm not bribing you. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not wowing you. I'm not inspiring you. But I'm available. Now, God is always available. Spoiler alert. God is always available. But in this month, God's even more available. God's even more available. And that gives permission to show up. So many times, I think, people have, I think we spoke about this a little bit last week, an um, imposter syndrome. Who am I? Yeah, who am I? I'm not such a not such a righteous person. I'm not such a spiritual person. I'm not the you know the the most religious person. Like so, who am I to really show up and 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 do this that it study or pray or learn whatever it is? And I study and learn the same thing, but I, I ran out of things. So, right, who am I to show up and and do this you know really special thing if I'm not like the biggest sadik, if I'm not the most righteous person? And so this month, God is in the field, and what that means is that we have permission. We have permission to show up and to, and, and to say that we want in on this relationship. And so the month of El is indeed Ani Lidodi Vidodilo. Sorry, Vidodili. I am to my beloved. We take the lead in this relationship. So this leads me to the topic today, which is love 2.0. There are, um, love is, I mean, can we say, would it be accurate to say that considering all of the poetry and all of the music, you know, ever penned, that love is probably the biggest topic or one of the biggest topics? Possibly? Yes? Money. You guys? Huh? Money. Money. Okay. True. But love, I think love is a, it's a big topic. There's two, there's, the, here's the problem with love. It's so hard to define what love is. And so I'll just share with you a thing that I share all the time, the idea of fish love. You know what fish love is? You know the band? No relation. So I was called a false flag right there. Here's the deal. Fish love is as follows. Huh? You're on a roll today. Thank you. Yeah. 
that I taught, so did I tell you? The less sleep I get, that's, it's always correlates. <laughs> anyway, it's been a busy weekend. Um, so, fish love. So there was once a, a yeshiva uh, that had a cafeteria, right? So a, 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 a Talmudic Academy cafeteria and the students, you know, for breakfast, lunch, lunch, dinner, they go eat from the cafeteria. And there was once a rabbi who walks down to the cafeteria and sees one of the yeshiva students, who was otherwise a serious student, a scholar, whatever, really eating the fish that was served for dinner with a lot of gusto. How do you define gusto? You know it when you see it. There's a lot of gusto. There's a lot of gusto happening with that fish. And so um, the rabbi walks over to the student and says, how's dinner? Seems like you're enjoying it. He says, yeah, I love fish. Rabbi says to the student, uh, slight correction, you don't love fish. If you loved fish, you would be feeding the fish, caring for the fish, nurturing the fish. You don't love fish. You love the taste of fish, which is two totally separate things. You love how fish makes you feel, which means you really love yourself and not the fish. You with me on that? Here is the truth about love. So often when we use that word, we're using it in the fish love context, right? I love chocolate. I love flowers. I love fish. I love sushi. Whatever the love is, so often, not whatever, but sometimes, very often, when we use that word love, what we're really saying is we love ourselves. So therefore, and, and we love anything that makes us feel better. So whether that's, what did I mention? Whether that's chocolate or flowers or fish, chalant? No, you said chalant? No, but it could be. Absolutely. Chalant, chalant, fish or sushi, whatever we allegedly love, we're not really loving that. We're loving how it makes us feel. So this is where love becomes inverted. And this, I think, is one of the most important lessons out there about love that no one talks about. Somehow in our society, and I don't know if it's a modern thing, but somehow in society, love has been inverted. Whereas love in its original context, certainly in, Kab in Kabbalah, love is the energy flow from within to without, from me to you. It's about actually loving you. It's about caring about you. It's about respecting you. It's about valuing you and therefore wanting to share with you that the directional arrow of love is always outward. Somehow an in popular society, love has become inverted where the arrow is pointing inward. So a person says, I love you because I love how you make me feel. What that really means is I only love you insofar as you satisfy my needs. And therefore, whom I really love is myself. And I love you as an accessory to self. Does that make sense? Which is not love. Self-love, I guess, but it's not, the directional arrow is not pointing out, it's pointing in in that case. The energy is drawing, is sucking inward and not radiating outward. And by the way, I'm not saying, I'm not like saying no one loves and everyone's got it wrong. I'm not saying anything bombastic like that. I'm just saying that so often we can catch ourselves, right? Using the word love in the opposite, at least initially, in the, uh, originally in the opposite meaning of what love really is. 
And if love is, I love how it makes me feel, it's not loving that, it's loving self, which is not a, pro, which is not a bad thing. We're allowed to love ourselves and allowed to eat, we're allowed to eat things that taste good. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we use the word love, it can really, it, it begins to, to wear down our very um, concept, the conception of what love is. And then what happens is it affects, not only weakens, it distorts it. So it goes on to the point where we can think of relationships, like, like human relationships, and think about people and devalue them as to, into objects that serve the purpose of giving me something that I want or don't have or need or whatever it is, fulfilling a need that I have. And that becomes an, a process of objectification. When the yeshiva student says, I love fish, he doesn't love fish. Maybe he does also, but he's consuming fish. Consuming is not the same as loving. It's the opposite. When you love, you nurture. When you love, you take care of. When you love, you give to. When you consume, you're taking, you're not giving. Eating is not giving. Eating is consuming two different realities. And so, do I love fish? I don't know, but not in this moment. You're not loving fish in this moment. It's not a problem to eat fish. Enjoy it, bon appetit. Not a problem. This is not a class advocating fasting all day. That's not this class. The point is just in our own heads be, and, and to understand what love is and what it isn't and how it's distorted because the, the implication of all this, which is a very serious implication, is that it can affect our human relationships to the point where we can think that what love is is how I feel, is how the other person makes me feel, which gets me to my real point, which is that sometimes it can be hard to know whether I love the person for who they are, or I love the person for how they make me feel, which is two different things. You with me on that? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. So, for example, let's use an example. We talked about this before in this class. I mean, not like today, but... So, for example, if somebody uh, um, meets someone... you all love this class. I don't even know if you're. <laughs> I appreciate. I'm gonna say I appreciate that, <laughs> but I'm a. Res that's a reserved response. Okay. okay. So imagine if someone, if uh, a guy, you know, he meets a woman and he's he's he says, oh, I want to take you out on a date, and and he says, all right, I'll pick you up six o'clock at your house. What's your address, etc. Oh, we can't have kids, guys. Um, Anthony, do you mind asking them, because I have specific requests from Mrs. Newt and not, no kids in this facility. Well, in this, in this space. Thank you. I appreciate you. You kind of do his dirty work. I literally. You love Anthony. He's now my goon. Not my goon. Uh, no, but yeah. But no, I, oh, no, really. No. Anthony is a kind man. And so if there's anyone that can deliver this news in a way that's, that's respecting the child, it's, it's Anthony. Um, okay, so imagine the, this guy says to her, says, I'll pick you up, what's your address? 6 p.m. tonight, I got you. So, and then 6 p.m., she's ready, she steps out of the house, and there's a limo, a stretched limo. And she, where are we going? No, ah, surprise. The limo takes her and him, the chauffeur. Chauffeur. <laughs> What's my problem? Oh, I put it away. Ah, I almost had four. All right, anyway, so the chauffeur comes. Chauffeur. And uh, he, he uh, takes them to the airport, to the private airport. 
Private airport? What do you call those airports? Private airport. Private airport? Like the cab? Is it yeah. private? Not private. Just Whatever. Regional airport. Regional airport. The small planes. Right. Uh, or maybe a big plane. I don't know. Takes to the private airport. And, and then, so where are we going? Oh, surprise. They get on the plane. There's champagne on the plane. There's, you know, whatever it is. There's, there's uh, food on the plane. We're going, huh? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Kosher champagne. Sushi? Always. That's obvious. Sushi comes in the, you know, when you open the seat back pocket, boom, sushi. That sounds gross. Anyway, so, so and, and where are we going? Eventually, they land a few, some hours later. They're in Paris. Paris. Wow. Paris. Eiffel Tower. Rented out the Eiffel Tower, the lobby. Is there a lobby? I've never been there. But there's a thing. Is there, like, you, can you sit under the tower? Can you sit there? Huh? No? All right, but he figured it out. They're sitting there. They're sitting there. Oh, they rented. We're, we're talking a JLI trip to Paris now. Absolutely, JLI trip to Paris. No, they rented out Paris. Not the Eiffel Tower. They rented out Paris. No one can leave their houses. So this guy's got free reign. And he wines and dines. And it's the mo- this is like the date of all dates. Like, what kind of. And then they go off to Rome. I don't know. We can embellish this, but. Because I haven't yet. So, anyway, so it's, it's an incredible date. And then he whisks her back home. And she is like, this is a fairy tale. This is like an absolute fairy tale. This, you can't, it's like beyond fairy tale. You can't even imagine how amazing this date is. And now she thinks to herself, so now, does she love this guy? Does he start talking about how rich he is and how wonderful he is? No, let's say he's, he's attentive and he's he fully, fully, uh, fully attentive to her. Fully attentive to her. It's all about her, not him. But now the question is, now she has to think. Or she ha- let's say she's thinking about this question. Do I like him? Do I love him? She can easily fall in love, but here's the question. Does she love him? Or does she love how he's treating her, which is two different things. Now, when I say it's two different things, it's, they're somewhat connected, right? Because a good person is going gonna, is gonna to care for those in a good way. So that's true. There is a connection. But however, the question is, forget what the guy is doing for you. The person behind... The date. Do you love that person? Do you respect that person? Do you want to give to that person? How do you feel about that person? Not how do you feel about how they treated you. You feel great. There's no chance that you don't feel great about that. But what do you feel about the person behind, behind those gifts? They're not mutually exclusive. Correct. It might, they might be a great person. You might be in love with both. That's true. But I'll tell you this. The more output, the more you're getting the harder it is to sift through your feelings and to know what is it, do, what is it about, I, I, I feel in love, but what is the love in this context? Is it a love that I love the other, them, or do I love what, I get, what I'm getting from them? Those might not be mutually exclusive and they could be complementary and they could be reflective of one greater truth and all of that is true. However, it is a process of sorting and sifting through feelings and through, you know, beliefs. Like, what, what do I love about this person? Do I like this person? If they lost everything tomorrow and all they were was themselves without the output, would I love them? That's the question. That's really the core of the question. If I didn't get anything from them, I can't say anything, if I didn't get that from them, would I love them? It's easy, see, that's, you know, when people first meet each other and fall in love, you know, wh- why is that initial whatever excitement, why is that so short-lived? 
because you know that initial excitement is about what I'm getting from this experience. But what maintains a, a long-term relationship is what I'm willing to give toward the relationship, is what I'm giving into the other. Do I respect the other? And really the key to love is that other word, which is respect. If I can respect the other, then it's not about what I'm getting. If I respect the fish, I'll also take care of the fish. If I love myself, I'm going to look at the fish as a tool, not as a tool, as a, I don't know, as a pawn in my game of feeling better about myself, objectifying the fish. So all to say that, um, that love 2.0, love 2.0, love 1.0 is how they make you feel. Love 2.0 is understanding how you feel about them. Does that make sense? Love 1.0 is the initial reactive love. I'm reacting to what I'm getting. Love 2.0 is the love that I'm feeling genuinely toward the other or not feeling genuinely toward the other. Is it based on their character? What is it? Yeah, ultimately it's going to be based on who they are as a person, not what they give to me, but who they are. Are they a mensch? Are they... Do I respect them? Do I appreciate them for who they are? Not for what I get from it, but for who they are. Because at the end of the day, when you're living with someone, right? I mean, the, the key to that is respecting them, wanting to hear what they have to say, and a different opinion, let's say, than me. If I only, like, if I only appreciate what I like getting, what I like hearing, well, how long will that last for? Everyone's being on their best behavior initially, right? Everyone's being on their best behavior, you know, and, and saying things that they hope the other one likes. But when that, when that kind of quiets down, then you're left with two people, two authentic people. And the question is, do I love you? Not what I get from Do I love you? Do I appreciate you? That's a beautiful thing to, realize, to recognize that, yes, I love you. I don't only love how you make me feel or what you do for me or whatever, whatever that is. Sure. It's definitely love is, is, is circular. circular, for sure. It's, this is, it's only going to work out good all around. But the point is that, that the, the, the initial, the direct meaning of love is, is this way. And so really everything that I've told you now is what the Talmud says. The Gemara, the Talmud says this about our relationship with God. Famous story, Mount Sinai. The Torah says that the Jewish people stood by the foot of Mount Sinai, and um, uh, they stood, betachtit, I think that's the word, hahar. They stood at the foot, or beneath, beneath the mountain. And the Talmud says the following. What happened at Sinai? God lifted up Mount Sinai above their heads. That's what it says. Talmud says. God lifted up, Anthony, thank you. God lifted up the mountain above their heads and said to them, do you wish to accept the Torah? If yes, great. If not, you will be buried here. How about that for a choice? How about that for a choice? Yeah, sure. Aha. How awkward. There's a mountain above my head. What do you choose? Come on. And the Talmud therefore says, Kan This becomes a big caveat to Torah, to the acceptance of Torah. In other words, when the Jewish people said, yes, we will receive the Torah, there was a big asterisk. Kind of like my Barry Bonds home run record. Barry Bonds used to be on the Pirates. He was half the size. Anyway, that's another story. So, although we loved him as a pirate. 
Then he left. All right. Arr. Um, 92, it was the Braves who did a sin. All right, forget that. Old, old news, but very still, the wounds are still fresh. So here's the point. Um, the Talmud says, here's the, the big asterisk of the whole story. Because, yeah, we accepted the Torah. We said, we're in. But under duress, under what type of circumstances? And the Talmud says, it was only centuries later, in the times of the story of Purim, Remember the story of Purim? You had the evil king, or King Ahasuerush. You had the evil minister Haman, or Haman, who wanted to destroy the Jewish people. And the Jewish people stood with self-sacrifice for a full year and didn't relinquish or renounce their Judaism. They could have said, Oh, Haman, you want to kill the Jews? Oh, we're Persian. Let's have a conversation. Persian to Persian. Person to person. Uh, all right. That's seven. Yeah, but that was a little too straight. It wasn't. Uh, didn't have enough. It's still counting. I tried. I tried. It's still going. On all right. Now. Yeah, that was. I'll, I'll. I'll give a deficit for that one myself. That one. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take away a point. The point is that it was only the Talmud says it was only the times of Purim, Mordechai, Esther, Queen Esther, Achashverosh. It was only then that the Jewish people demonstrated that they're real. That they really love God, even when they're not seemingly not getting anything out of that relationship. You with me on this? That they're demonstrating... Sorry, I just jumped the gun on the Hasidic explanation. Let me rewind that, sorry. That's when they demonstrated that they really are dedicated to Judaism, to Torah, even under duress that happened in the times of Purim. I don't know that I'm able to explain this without going deeper. Let's go deeper. All right. Let's, let's go back. What's this business of the mountain over their heads? Prior in the story, when Moses... Uh, presents the question to the Jewish people, do you want the Torah? The Jewish people said yes. So why later, a few verses later, does it say that God, uh, uh, the Talmud says that God held their, uh, the mountain over their heads? Again, to the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, he says the following take on this, mystical take, it's beautiful. He says it's not literal, there wasn't literally a mountain over their heads. It never happened. Here's what happened. The mountain is a metaphor. Mountain is a metaphor for love. Why? Because love is a very big emotion. And big emotions are like mountains. You have a landscape, a flat landscape, and then a mountain that really juts out, a beautiful mountain, big mountain. Love is big, it's a big emotion. It's a soaring emotion. So the mountain, mountain equals love. So picture a heart-shaped mountain. Don't, whatever, love, mountain equals love. When it says in the Talmud that God held a mountain over the heads, you know what that means? God had flown them to Paris on a private jet with caviar. I don't know if that's kosher. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Sushi, not sushi. Kosher steaks and the whole nine yards. That's what happened. They were slaves in Egypt. And what did God do? He wowed them. He wowed them beyond. He brought them, well, uh, the enemy. I mean, they're captive. the, the, The Egyptians, plagues. He split the sea. They became fabulously wealthy. Miracle after miracle after miracle. But didn't they know that day was supposed to come? Wasn't it? Yeah, but, but one second. But let's just describe this. So how, how would you feel? Imagine you were one of the Israelites. Imagine you were there. You would feel like, wow, God really loves me. To care about me? There's so many people in the world that are, you know, uh, maybe you know, in a negative situation. Cares about us? Cares about me? To rescue me from this, from this, uh, from this you know, from... from obscurity and to lift me up and to bring me to this place, to the mountain that they knew about and to, to, to join in this union, to give us a document of purpose and meaning and a mission and to, a divine mission. That's amazing. 
How could you say no? And the answer is, you couldn't say no. You couldn't say no. The Talmud says, that's the asterisk. Not out of danger, but out of... I don't know. What's the opposite? Out of, no, out of uh, whining and dining. What's the right word for that? Benevolence. Benevolence. Kill him with kindness. Not kill him. Love him with kindness. The Jewish people had no choice but to say, God's like, do you want the Torah? (laughs) We'll take whatever you want. Whatever you want to give us. Absolutely. Why? Because... God says, do you love me? Yes. But here's the question. Do you really love God? Or do you love what God did for you? Those are two different things. Do you really love the other? Or do you love what they're doing for you? He said today, those are two different things. Do you love... Uh, Yes. That's that's where Judaism comes in. To make you meshuggah. I'm kidding. But this is a real question. It was only in the times of Purim, and that's why I jumped the gun before, when the Jews were not getting any feedback from above. Their lives were in danger. Where's God? Silence. Praying. Silence. Silence. Nothing. All you have is, all the Jews literally were under one rule. It was the most dangerous time in all of Jewish history. It worked out well, but it was more because all of the Jews at that time, there were no other countries to find safe, to find refuge. Or to, right, there were no Jews in other countries. World War II, there were Jews in other countries. I'm not that, not downplaying this. I'm just saying that the threat then was literally annihilation of the entire Jewish people forever. That was what was at stake. And Haman was second in command, and he got the signet ring. This was cleared for you know cleared for absolute havoc and the uh, devastation. Men and the decree was men, women, and children. Minar va'adzakein. Taf v'nashim b'yom echad on one day. Men, women, children, old, young, in one day. One day. There was no escape. There was no hope. Here's the question. Simple question. When the chips are down, do you love God? Now how do you love God? Now how do you, No whining and dining now. No huge miracles now. Yeah, do you love God? When the chips are down is when you pray hardest. But do you love God now? Are you dedicated or do you want out of the relationship now? That's the question. And the Jews, for a full year, opted into the relationship. Said, "We're in. It doesn't matter. We're not get, right now. We're not getting feedback. Right now, we're not getting. We're not getting that type of, you know, that. Oh, wow! Like you're not feeling the love coming from the other. But we are so in this relationship, even when we're not seeing that from the other, we are still. We are not going to. We are still dedicated. We still love God. We don't understand why there. Why there's a wall right now, but we love." The Talmud says that's when they really opted into this whole Judaism thing. That's unconditional love, right? Unconditional love is when when you get feedback from the other, it's one thing. But when you're not getting feedback and you're giving, giving, and they need you, right? They need you and you're there for them. You're there for the person that you love unconditionally. Not for what you're getting from it, but because you love them. That's true love. That's true love. It's like clients and children. Yeah, yeah. So or taking care, or taking care of someone. So that my upanam upanam love is love 1.0. Yeah. Anything that any love that is that is um, responsive, like my love is in response to an, an, another stimuli. Again, I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying that's love 1.0, and that's not. We don't yet know if that's real. You don't know if that's real. You only know it's real when you don't have that, and you still love. Now you know it's real. 
That's why you never know how you feel about someone until the first fight. Because now the question is, do you still love them? First disagreement, right? Because now they're not just, you know, saying everything that you like and giving everything. Now there's, now there's a point of, of a little conflict. Now the question is, do you still love them? And you only know when you know. You only know when you know. There's no way to predict that in the beginning of a relationship. You can't know that. How can you know that? How could the Jewish people know at Sinai if they really loved God? How do you know? You can't. Oh, of course we love God. Really? Really? You love God or it's fish love? Right? You love fish or you love God? When you say love God, I say I love God. What does that mean? You're saying words and that's great. But you also love chocolate. And that's only because you like how it tastes. So what do you love about God right now? You love that God rescued you? You love that God is lifting you up? You love that God is giving you purpose and meaning? Okay, all of that is great, but is that really loving God or that's loving what you get out of that relationship? Two different... Rea- two different. He commanded us to love Him. Okay, that's something else. We'll have to... Right? We'll have to... But here's my point. And this, again, the Talmud says this. Kan moda'a The big asterisk, the huge asterisk was at Sinai when God held that mountain, that, that, when God was in this... In, uh, showering love upon, upon the Jewish people. That's when you don't know whether you actually love God or not. It's only centuries later in the times of Purim when all of the chips were down, when they were getting nothing as, a, I mean, obviously life, but not seeing any feedback from God. You ever have those experiences where you decide you're showing up for God? That's it. I'm just going to go all in. I'm going to do something that I'm not so comfortable with. I'm going to do an extra mitzvah. I'm going to study extra hard. I'm going to give extra tzedakah, charity. I'm going to do something a little bit beyond my comfort zone. And I know that it's going to pay dividends. And then you do it. Silence. It's called Kalab Yisrael. <laughs> right? You did the right thing. Right? right? The person does the right thing. And you're expecting the windfall. You're expecting, let's go. So now, let's, let's get the lights on. Right? Let's see the let's see the aura. Silence. I think right I think it? I think it's from the um, Rav Nachman of Breslov. Yeah, Rabbi Nachman. I think he says this, and I'm quoting from the movie Ushpizen. Anybody watch that movie? <laughs> the Ushpizen movie. Love that movie. It's a, it's a Sukkot related. It's a, I don't know how, I don't know how to describe it. It is comedy. And drama and and ultra orthodox life just wrapped around the an Esrog story. It's like it's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. Came out a bunch of years ago. It's really beautiful. But there's but there's I'm sure it's somewhere. Um, so anyway, there's one scene where the main character. I'm not going to give the story away, but where the main character is going through some struggles and he's been trying to do the right thing, but every time he tries to do the right thing, it doesn't work out. And he doesn't know what to do. So he goes to his rabbi. And his rabbi says, there's a teaching from Rav Nachman uh, of Breslov that the teaching is that the real test is not the first test that you get. Because the first test that you get, you can feel like I'm going to pass the test and then because I I sacrificed, so I'm going to get. The real test is when you pass that first test and you don't get the glory. You don't get that the reward. Because you thought you were going to sacrifice but then it's going to pay off. You sacrificed and then it didn't pay off. 
Let's say it backfires. Let's say it gets worse. The real test is that second test. Are you still going to do the right thing? Even though you didn't get the feedback. Love 1.0, love 2.0. Are you doing it because of the feedback that you're getting or the perceived feedback you're going to get? You're investing in the return. Or are you doing it because it's the right thing? That's the question. Love 2.0 means we're not loving God because of what we're getting from that relationship. We're loving God because God is truth. Because God is the truth of existence. And therefore, if it's true, how can you not love? How can you not be dedicated to if it's true? That's the rationale for love. Not because what I get from it. What I get from it is, is bonus, is gravy. But real love is, real love is that commitment. Yeah, yeah. Am I going to do something that goes against everything that I, all the feedback that I have wanted, i.e. a child, to be willing to bind my child, right? Abraham, to bind his son on the altar. And God says, I never told you to kill him. I said, bring him up. You brought him up, take him down. But you passed the test. And the lesson, of course, is that we don't do human sacrifice. And that was the, the clarion call from that episode, is that human sacrifice is not a thing. And our abhorrence to that is not because of our superior morality over Abraham. It's because of Abraham that we learned this lesson at a time when human sacrifice was the norm. Anybody ever been to Mexico? I haven't, but I've spoken to people that have. And they tell me that they go to these, these, um, these temples. I don't know why I'm going like this. They have stairs. They would throw human sacrifices all the time down the stairs. And you know, they don't always say it on the tours, but this was, this was a thing. Both. We don't talk about Isaac. But he was, he was 37 years old. Could we, could we go back to Hard Sinai? Absolutely. I was always told, maybe incorrectly, that there isn't an extra word or letter or in the Torah, that the Torah is 100% and it can be taken metaphorically, but that the Torah is literal. Yes. So there are many that believe that, yes, that mountain was held over their head. One second. The Torah, the, the Torah itself doesn't say that. The Torah says they stood at the foot of the mountain. The Talmud says, or the Medrash says, that God lifted up the mountain. And Chassidah says, yes, Chassidah says, now what does that mean? Because the Talmud does speak in metaphor. It doesn't mean that literally the mountain was suspended no, over there. that's okay. Now that you say Correct. the Talmud. Yeah, but thank you for asking so that I had a chance to clarify. Because I would hate to for that misconception that, that we're discounting a, a verse. This is not discounting a, or, or taking a verse out of its literal meaning. This is respecting the verse that says that they stood at the foot of the mountain, but understanding what the Talmud means, that the mountain was above their head. It means that the love was... So what does this mean for us in the month of El? El is a time... So El, the acronym, one of the acronyms is Ani, Lododi, Vododili. People that get married in El, if you have a wedding this time of year, a lot of the invitations will say that, a lot of the... The benchers, whatever, like the paraphernalia that's given out at the wedding, will have that beautiful verse from Song of Songs. I am to my beloved, my beloved is to me. That's this month. The energy of this month is that we are to God and then God is to us. And what's the point of that? The point is 
that it's not about what God gives us. See, if it's do diliva anilov, if it's my beloved is to me and then I'm to my beloved, you know what that means? That you know why I love God? Because of what I got. God loves me, of course I love God. Look what I'll, I get all this, um, that's what I'm looking for, swag, merch. I got all this merch. Of course I love God. It, God comes with merch. Absolutely love God. God's great. I get all this stuff. Of course, I love fish also. It's great. I, accessories. Yeah. Black boxes to wrap in the morning. Yeah. I'm telling you this morning. And women sorry, not this candles, morning. So the, Friday night is perfect. Absolutely. Right. It's a beautiful candle at dinner. It's fantastic. This, the last two weeks, I've been running a yeshiva here. I think some of you guys know this. For the kids. Basically, all the yeshiva students, 14 through 19 that are in town and that are, you know, whatever, in between yeshivas, they're going out of town, whatever. So we've, we've been running a yeshiva throughout the, day, uh, throughout the morning, 8 to 1. It was, I mean, I'm not, it, it was inc- a lot of coordination work, but it was amazing for these guys. Did you love it? One second. So here, yes, <laughs> yes. I loved giving the opportunity for these guys to connect with each other, etc. But here's the thing. Every day I was ordering, so um, breakfast was coming from Kosher Gourmet in Toko. And instead of them delivering it, so I had Uber delivery deliver it, which is great. You guys know about this? Uber package? Open up Uber. It's amazing. Uber so has now, because you know people don't only just want rides, they want tra- things transported. So you hit, on the app, you hit package. It's a different, it's like another, I have to look, package. And then you say, are you sending or receiving? As receiving. Sender is Kosher Gourmet. You give instructions. Who's receiving it? Me. Give the address. Boom. I'm t- from Toko Hills to here? Nine bucks. 10.50. I'm like, it's not even, I, I, don't, I feel bad. I tip well because I'm like, this person, is, it's about an hour till they get there, till they pick it up, till they come here. It's about an hour plus gas. And, and Uber's taking a split. I'm like, I don't know how much they're getting like, I don't even know what's going on. But, you know, back in the day, we used to use couriers. Couriers have, like, a minimum fee of, like, 50 bucks or whatever it is or maybe more. This is, like, it's... it's, it's I use Uber to send me stuff from my own stores oh. rather than take the drive myself. Right. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's more efficient. No, you send, like, if your kid's on a sleepover, right, and they don't have uh, pajamas, you could send it like that or even send the kid. If you put him in a... Bu- <laughs> Choking, choking, choking. Yeah, no, 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 but somehow package, but somehow package, right, you're right. It's it's somehow being, I don't know, the number, the, it doesn't make, the numbers don't make sense. And but anyway. actually their service works because I use Courier and Uber. Uber's better. Uber's fantastic. Except the only problem I have is we put Uber packs. Right, exactly, and then they go back up. Where we do Uber packs, that's the business model. They show up and they say, "You can't be packaged. Your food. You're supposed to be Uber food." Interesting. Oh, oh, really? I never said that. Anyway, here's my point. My point is that this week, I have been talking about paraphernalia, the Jewish paraphernalia, like because I, I order it around like the chakras, the davening time. And I'm always receiving it on my end, wearing my tefillin. So a lot of people have had a, a lot of Uber drivers have had a lot of like, what is this man doing in a prayer shawl and black boxes and like, am I safe? But I've been smiling and been very friendly. So like, hopefully disarming everybody's concern about my look. I've anyway, the point is, it was a leprechaun hat. Leprechaun hat. What tefillin? Really? Could be. All right, back to the story. So what's the point? Love 2.0. Love 2.0 is about my investment in you, not about your investment in me. That will come also, 
right? If we're invested in the other, they're going to be invested in us. It's going to work both ways. But I, my cheshbon, my calculation is not what I'm getting. It's about what I'm giving. Because love is moving that direction. So with this in mind, I want to read together. We have five minutes. I want to read together chapter four. It's a beautiful chapter in this discourse. Now you're going to think, I'm ta- I know what you're thinking. I know what you're going to think because I'm a mind reader also. And that is, what does any of this have to do with what we spoke about today, Love 2.0? Love 2.0. Well, first of all, uh, what we spoke about today is timely because it's the month of El. This month is a month in which our overture is to God and not about what we're getting from it, but about our appreciation for our relationship with God and therefore our love for God. That's number one. But number two, it also speaks to a major piece theme of this chapter. It's a short chapter, a major theme of chapter four, which is that notwithstanding that our main focus, please take and pass, that our main focus is to work on the parts of ourselves that are easier to work on, but we can also choose 2.0 from our own choice, from our own volition, from our own um, inspiration to work on ourselves on the inside and to change the very nature of our characters. That is the upshot of chapter four. It really has to do with loving God 2.0. Okay, so with all of this in mind, all of this hakdama, all of this introduction in mind, let's jump into chapter four of our Mime of our Discourse. And I am going to share this with our Zoom crew our strong Zoom crew, here, right now. It's on the screen. Chapter 4, it's called Biat Sadik. All right, it can be said that this explains the eternal relevance for every generation. Oh, did everyone get it? Are we sure one? You guys? Oh, okay. You guys are good? Sh- sharing? Okay. That's true love. Sharing a cut. Co- being a copy of short and sharing. <laughs> Uh, page 31, 31, 30 and 31. Okay, it can be said that this explains the eternal relevance for every generation of the commandment to annihilate the... Oh, wow, we're getting into annihilation. But you'll see this, this changes. To annihilate the seven nations and conquer their land. So there, and one of the mitzvahs in the Torah is to move out, move out the seven nations that are living in the land of Israel and to turn it into from the land of Canaan to the land of Israel. And so... Here, the author says, the Rebbe says, that this explains how that mitzvah is eternal even today when there is no context of that. Despite the fact that the conquest of the land represents the transformation of the seven emotions of the animal soul to holiness, and this is only relevant to tzaddikim, indeed, not every person merits this. So when we talk about conquering the land, the land was a land of seven nations. The seven nations Kabbalistically respond to the seven natural um, um, attributes Chesed, Gvura, Teferet, Netzach, Hod, Yesod, Malchut, which we talked about many times, the seven emotional modalities of every human being and how they could be in a foreign space, in a negative space. Love might be consuming, might be obsessive. Um, Gvura, discipline, might turn to anger and rage. You could have all these negative manifestations of the seven midot, of the seven attributes, and the goal of conquering the spiritual meaning of conquering the land of Israel, of seven nations, is to conquer the inner landscape. Just to conquer in a good way is to make sure that my love is in a healthy space, that my discipline is healthy, that my compassion is where it needs to be for what it needs to be and not enabling, that my netzach, my ambition is in the right place, that my humility is in the right place, that my uh, relationships are healthy, that my leadership is always healthy and not dictatorship. Thank you, Menachem. Thank you. So my goal is to transform my seven nations, my Canaan nations, into Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. To make holy the adjective of the land. 
to transform the land into the holy land, to transform the human heart into a holy human heart. That's the goal. That's the, that's the mitzvah of conquering, wiping out, as it were. The seven nations means to conquer the inner landscape. Now his question, though, is, but how can everyone do that? To transform your heart? To make your very attributes holy? That's, like the, that's the stuff of tzaddik, of tzaddikim. He explains why this is for each of us, why all of us study this in Torah, the spirit, which includes the spiritual meaning. He says, why since every Jew, and now we continue on the next page, flip the page, since every Jew, page 32, must do all in his power to fulfill the oath administered to him, be it tzaddik. Meaning, although, although on the surface, as we said last week, the main, our main work is to make sure that we're moderating, that we are, that we are in a healthy space in our heads, in our words, and in our actions. But on a deeper level, every one of us also should strive to work on also our inner character. So for sure, if you're feeling angry and wish to say something nasty, step one, don't say it. You want to gossip? Don't do it. You want to do something harmful? No. Think negative thoughts? Push them away. Redirect, like we spoke about last week, how to redirect our thoughts, right? Mind control, be in control of your thoughts. Great. But step two, and this is not love 2.0, but this is work, avodah, inner work 2.0, is not just working on the outside, but now it's working, taking the initiative to work on the inside. Yes, I'm going to make sure that those words, those ugly words don't come out of my mouth. But at the same time, I'm also going to work on what's going on inside. Why do I want to say that in the first place? What is triggering me to wish to say something less than kind? And then how do I work on myself to become healthier inside, happier inside, so that the, the positive stuff naturally flows on the outside and I'm not in, in constant war and tension within myself? This explains why the story of the sending of the spies by Moses to scout out the entire land, which is the concept, the spiritual concept of working on our inner emotional landscape, that's why that story is also written in the Torah, Torah connoting, Hora'ah instruction. Torah actually in Hebrew, Torah is related to the word Hora'ah, which means instruction. Moreh, Torah, it's about teaching. It's a guidebook. Why? Since every Jew must scout out and examine his emotions and ensure that they are entirely devoted to God. Just like Moses sends spies to the entire land of Canaan, we also must send out spies, i.e. take an internal audit of where we are inside, not just what's going on in the outside, not just how we're showing up, but how we're showing in, not just how we're presenting, but how we are feeling, to look inside, to look internally. That is the spiritual, constant, eternal message of sending the, Moses sending the spies to the entire land of Israel. What is the message? You and I also, like Moses, should look inside from time to time and take stock in this month, certainly it's the perfect time to do so. And ensure that they're entirely devoted to God. I read that. Nevertheless, with one caveat, regarding Moses' spies that is written, sent for you by your own judgment, I am not commanding you. God says, I am not mandating this effort, this internal work. You are the one that is going to make that call. This is 2.0. This is not God saying this you must do. This is God saying, I'm giving you permission, like the king in the field. You have permission to look inside. I'm not commanding you to do so. What I am commanding you to do is show up like a mensch. Don't do anything hurtful. Don't say anything hurtful. And don't think anything hurtful. That's, that's the commandment. That's what you have to do.
But on your own, if you want, if you want to work on yourself, this is what you do. Look inside. Why do I have the desire? Why do I have the drive? I'll be done in two minutes. Why do I have the temptation to say something negative, do something negative? Where is that coming from? How do I move my inner space into a different place so that that doesn't happen? Since the primary command of scouting and examining back inside, of exa- and examining oneself applies to thought, speech, indeed, the conquest of Jericho over which every person is controlled, unlike the emotions of the heart. What Joshua, going back to our original tale of two spies, the spies of Moses and those of Joshua, Joshua only sends to Jericho, which means Joshua is, the, is representative, is, is emblematic of, uh, of, of being in control of the, of the um, garments of the soul, which is thought, speech, and action. That's what Joshua focuses on, and that is a commandment. That we, we must do. We, we are commanded by God to do the right thing, say the right thing, and think the right thing. But how we feel inside is not mandated. That's not dictated by God. That's where we show up in our relationship with God. That's us saying, I'm not just going to give you flowers because I know that's the right thing to do, but I care for you in my heart. I really love you and I want to give you flowers. No one knows how you feel inside. Only you and I know how we feel inside. And here we have this beautiful space that the Torah creates for us. A space to look inside when we feel ready. God says, I will tell you, God has no problem telling Moses what to do or telling Moses what to tell the people what they must do. But in this case, in this one case, and I don't know if there's another space in Torah where this exists, God says, I'm not telling you what to do. You want to send spies? Great. If you feel it's the right time to send spies, sure. If not, not. I'm leaving it up to you. And God does the same for us. God says, you have to show up like a mensch, but what goes on inside, I'll let you decide the right time and place to work on inside. In a relationship, to be a mensch, to show up the right way, that's what you have to do. You're in a relationship. You have to show up the right way. How you feel inside, that's where we check in with ourselves. When? When we're ready, when we feel confident. But that, one might say, is the most, is the most important or, or, or a very special piece of it because that's no longer relationship 1.0. That's relationship 2.0. That's not, that's not just mensch, being a mensch 1.0. That's being a mensch 2.0. So today, what we studied, just to recap, today what we learned about is what it means to take initiative, what it means to, first of all, what it means to love, what it means to genuinely love the other, which is tied in with respect, what it means to work on ourselves from the inside out, not from the outside in, and to really strive for self-betterment that's not just in order to look better on the outside, but to really be better on the inside. And that is a major piece of this month of El, to take stock, inner stock, just you and yourself. You know, show up for yourself this month, check in, and uh, not like what they said in the 60s, check out, what was it? Uh, tune on, tune on, tune out. Something, right? <laughs> drop out, yeah. drop in, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But not, not that, but to really tune into yourself and to check in with yourself and to make those incremental changes that go a, a long way. The little changes on the inside make far-reaching impact on the outside. Something to keep in mind. It's not, a, it's, not a, uh, it's not a dramatic shift that happens on the inside. It's a little shift, little shift. It could be anything, shift in schedule, a shift in the first thing that you read every morning, small shifts about our internal behavior that can go a long way in how we show up for others around us. Thank you for joining me this morning for Kabbalah Cafe. Hope you enjoyed it. And apologies again for the bad jokes. I'm kidding. That's not real. That's not a real apology. And That's like, not authentic. And lack of hash browns. And lack of hash browns. Next. So, 
See, the month of El, we have the opportunity to change and to pivot. So next week, please, God, we'll step up. Anthony, I want to say again, thank you. Anthony, thank you. And thank you to all for showing up. And for all. Hey, Mariana, great to see you. Hey, Alex. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. Hey, Alex, great to see you. Love the background. <laughs> I'm feeling the light. <laughs> Tony, Katerina, and Lisa, and Mariana, please give regards to everybody. We'll see you guys. Take care. Um, yeah, you know what? Email, email Lisa, email me, and I will send you um, a link to a copy. Okay? Yeah, we got one online. All right, we'll see you guys. Take care. All right. Pleasure. It's great to see you. This is the